America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. Today, we are talking to James Cowan, the CEO at the Halo Trust. The Halo Trust is a charity which specializes in removing landmines and unexploded ordnance and helping communities get back to their homes and recover from conflict. In his past life, James served as a commander for the British forces in Afghanistan and has extensive experience in Afghanistan, Iraq, Kosovo, and also Zimbabwe. So what I want to talk to him about is Halo Trust's work and how it's evolving in some of the conflicts like Ukraine and Afghanistan. James has recently returned from both of these countries, and I think you, as well as I, will find it really interesting to hear how he sees the situation developing. So, James, thank you for joining us, and welcome to War and Peace. Thank you, Olga. James, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how Halo Trust works? Do you actually send people out to remove the landmines? Do you train local folks to do it? Is it a combination of these? Yeah, so our mission is really in two parts. It's to save lives and, in the second part, to restore livelihoods. So our ethos is to train local people. We employ about 10,500 around the world, And we believe that by recruiting, training, and then deploying into the field local staff, you empower local people to become in charge of their own destinies. But also this is a dangerous activity. So we need to train them to the right level. So in amongst the 10,500 local staff, we also have 250 international staff. We're an Anglo-American charity. So those internationals tend to come from the UK, from America, Europe and elsewhere in the developed world. And how are you funded? So we're a charity, and that means that here in the UK, we are governed by the Charity Commission. And in the United States, we're a 501c3 charity. So we are funded both by governments. The United States is our biggest and most generous donor. United Kingdom, Germany, other European countries, Canada, Japan. And their purpose in funding us is not always the same. Some want a purely humanitarian outcome, some want a development outcome, and some want a, a stabilization outcome. But we can be pretty multilingual, and there's enough overlap between those requirements to make sure that we cover our donors' needs. But we are also funded by private donors, and we have some amazing corporates, foundations, and private individuals who support our work. So... Halo Trust has been working in Ukraine since 2016, and you were recently there. What did you see when you were there? It's become much more heavily mined since Russia launched its full-scale invasion in February. How do you see the main challenges there? Yeah, we actually got started at the end of 2015. Really, obviously, was in response to the 2014 war. We've been working in the Donbass. We had people based as far south as Mariupol, and right up into the Donbass. And our main center of operations was in Kramatorsk. So really where all the fighting is happening now. And we've been helping the Ukrainians clear devices from their area, always with their agreement. We were never going to be able to, even if we'd wanted to, 
to clear defensive mine belts that they wanted to keep. It was always about removing landmines that were no longer of military value, but did have a humanitarian impact in terms of denying people access to farmland or to housing. So we've been doing that job really in that period, 2015 up until February the 24th. And of course, none of us could know how the war was going to develop. And I think initially most of us, including me, probably thought the Russians would prevail quite quickly. So we put the programme into suspended animation. But as soon as it was obvious that the Russians were not going to succeed quickly, I thought this is a real moment to achieve something really very important, which is to not just have a programme there, but to expand it hugely to meet the demands, not of the 2014 war, but of the new war. Halo is famous for tackling landmines, but actually we've always tackled cluster munitions, always tackled artillery ammunition. And as we all know, this war is rapidly becoming an artillery duel. And we're perfectly capable and have the skills to tackle all types of explosive weaponry from large air-delivered munitions, rockets, artillery shells, and of course, landmines. So that's what we're doing. We've pivoted from the Donbass. Uh, We've recovered as many of our staff as possible. Of course, some have been conscripted. Some, sadly, are casualties. Others, for their own reasons, are not able to work at the moment because they have commitments to families. But we've been able to recover over half the programme. And we also have been very lucky with our donors who've been incredibly generous. And we've been able to not only keep the programme, but expand it hugely now. We're into training new staff. And we've pivoted from the Donbass to at the centre of the country where we're training at Venezia, and then with the deployment around all the affected areas of Kyiv, which of course are A, heavily contaminated and B, sufficiently consensual given the Russian withdrawal for us to be able to work around that. Have you had any issues with the Ukrainian government not wanting to demine or to clear some areas? I know that's been a political issue, a frustration that some areas were potentially cleared prematurely because Russian forces had left, but then there was concern they were coming back in. Is that something that you've gotten involved in at all? No, not at all. I think this is a bit of a non-issue. I mean, first of all, we're not in the contested areas. We're not going to operate in the Donbass until such point that it's sufficiently safe to do so. You know, my people are unarmed. They're not in a position to deal with incoming artillery. So we're operating around Kyiv with the absolute permission of the authorities. We work very closely with the state emergency service and with the army. So nothing we do happens without a discussion with them. And we wouldn't dream of starting clearance in areas that they didn't want it to happen. And you only work on the Ukrainian-controlled side of the line, and that's been the case since 2015. You've never worked in the other side. You know, we're a humanitarian organization, and we believe in impartiality and neutrality. But, of course, it takes two to tango. And we would have to have the invitation of the Russian Federation to be able to work in in Russian-controlled areas. And having visited Ukraine recently and seen the results of the more recent work, do you come back from that feeling optimistic? Is it just a tremendous amount left to do? Or is it something that you think is under control thanks to people like your staff and the Ukrainian government itself? So I am optimistic because I know what my organization can do. However, that is not naivety or to underplay the magnitude of the challenge. I think the important thing to remember right now is that this war has started with multiple fronts and only one of them is now sufficiently consensual to operate in around Kyiv. Now, it may be that 
around Kharkiv and Sumi, it'll soon be possible to do more there. And we'd very much like to, to be there to help. But we must face reality, which is that the Donbass is impossible at the moment to operate in. And it would be pointless as well, because it'd be like trying to sweep the sea away. You've got to have some sort of ceasefire in place in order for mine clearance to be relevant. And of course, the fourth area is on the coast. And if the Ukrainians are able to retake territory around Kurzon, Mykolaiv and further to the east, then of course, we would wish to be there and be involved in the clearance. Now, urban clearance, as opposed to flat agricultural land is a massive challenge because you've got three-dimensional problems associated with buildings. You've got rebar, which of course plays havoc, reinforced concrete with metal in it. It plays havoc with mine detectors. So it's a far larger problem. And if you look at the scale of destruction meted out on towns like Maripol, this is a vast challenge. So we're a long way from getting anywhere near starting, let alone finishing in those places. But I am an optimist and I do believe the organization is up to the challenge. I remember visiting Ukraine in 2015 and being on Ukrainian-controlled territory in the east and just being warned very much about, if you get out of the car, do not go into the woods. Just this area is really heavily mined, and I imagine it's just even more so now, plus all the new unexploded ordnance. Have we seen a lot of civilian casualties of this? I mean, I know that was actually stepping up somewhat uh, prior to the escalation that people were going through the woods and on government controlled territories and getting injured. Have we seen a lot of civilian casualties since February? Well, I only got back from Afghanistan on Friday, so I haven't seen the latest figures, but the answer is yes. And of course, this is happening because farmers want to plant their crops. They want to farm their land. People want to go back to their homes and businessmen want to restart their businesses and factory owners want to restart their factories. So, yes, of course, there is an imperative to get going. And this is why Mine Action is going to be such an important enabler for the vital aspect of this war, which is that the Ukrainian economy is now functioning under 50% of GDP. And some estimates I hear bring it as low as 40%. And unless the Ukrainian economy can get going again, it's not going to export grain. It's not going to make things that bring wealth to its people. And Ukraine faces a a pretty grim future. So none of those things can happen until explosive hazards are removed. So I want to pivot to Afghanistan and ask you when the Taliban took control of the country, were you confident you would be able to continue to work there? Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty shocking year for the Halo Trust in Afghanistan. It's our biggest program and our oldest program. We've been there since 1988. And whilst we employ 430 people pre 24th of February in, in Ukraine, we employ sometimes as high as 4,000 people in Afghanistan. So it's a much bigger program. And in June of last year, we were attacked by Daesh and 12 of our staff were murdered. So that was a pretty shocking event for us. And of course, that event was then somewhat put in the shade by what took place in August of last year. But my call on this was that we would keep going. And whilst others were obsessed by the evacuation operation, my staff were cool and calm and keen to remain committed to Afghanistan. And we quite quickly began discussions with the Taliban. We had been talking to them anyway and been operating in shadow governance controlled areas. And within 10 days of the August changeover of power, we were back in the field. So that's the background. And we've now got two and a half thousand people deployed. 
we've pivoted from clearing Soviet-era landmines to clearing the improvised explosive devices of the recent conflict. But not only those laid by the Taliban, I think it's a mistake to think this is all about the Taliban. There's a huge amount of NATO ammunition, notably 40mm cannon, mortar ammunition of various types, artillery ammunition. All this material is out there and killing and wounding civilians. And with the Taliban in power now, are you actually able to make significant progress that was not possible while the war was still ongoing? So I think for the Hano Trust to operate, it needs three things, the three M's of money, munitions and mandate. Now, munitions, it's obvious that there's a massive problem in both Ukraine and in Afghanistan. So we're always going to have that humanitarian imperative to tackle those munitions. The mandate bit is the interesting one. We need a mandate to be able to operate, and that mandate has to come from the de facto government of Afghanistan, namely, as they call themselves, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The money is flowing to Ukraine. Governments are keen to support our work there. But in Afghanistan, I think there is a slightly kind of bipolar, confused mood within Western policymakers. Are they there to support the people of Afghanistan or to punish an unrecognized regime. And they're not sure whether they want to support our work there at the moment. Some do and some don't. So the German government's been very forward-leaning. The British have been good. I very much hope that the Biden administration, because it was bruised by what took place in August last year, doesn't try and walk away from it. I think it would be a terrible mistake, not least because even though you could say, well, they laid them, they can clear them. Actually, a lot of the explosive hazard out there is NATO or at least American ammunition, particularly these 40 millimeter cannon rounds, which have a, a yellow metal nose and the locals, particularly children, think they are gold. And therefore, there's a lot of casualties resulting from attempts to harvest valuable metals. That's horrifying. I'm also wondering if we have the same issues with agriculture that you described in Ukraine, particularly given the food security challenges in Afghanistan. Are people having difficulty farming or are people being injured when they try to farm as a result of all the unexploded munitions? Yeah, so I traveled down to Kandahar. And for those who know Afghanistan, just outside Kandahar is uh, one of the most productive districts of Afghanistan in the Panchway. The Panchway relies on irrigation and because of the IED contamination, those irrigation systems have broken down. A lot of farmland is not being farmed and it's amazing to see the difference. When you come to an area that's been cleared by Halo, you see green fields, amazingly productive, and then you just have to look to left or right to an area that hasn't been cleared and it's basically barren, no irrigation, nothing is growing and it isn't producing food. Now, you know, we're all talking about this coming famine. It's born of both climate change and, of course, of what's taking place in Ukraine. This is a really major global issue. So what is the relationship like with the Taliban? Are they supportive, is the right uh, phrasing? So the Halo Trust has to walk the line. Our responsibility, our duty is as a humanitarian organisation to the people of Afghanistan, not to anybody's government. But we also have a legal responsibility not to breach anyone's sanctions. So we're extremely careful about how we operate. But I went to Afghanistan to essentially meet the de facto government, meet ministers. And I 
obviously needed to make sure that they would be welcoming of my arrival there. I mean, I'm senior leader of a Western NGO and I wanted to make sure that they wanted me to be there. I was really quite pleased by my reception. I mean, the Afghans are famous for Pashtun Wali, the, the code of Afghan uh, Pashtun hospitality. And they really couldn't have been more accommodating. I saw several senior members of the Taliban, including Willa Malawi Sharafuddin, who had spent time in Guantanamo Bay. He was extremely keen for us to be doing our work and was extremely hospitable. I saw Mullah Abdul Manan Omari, who's the brother of the leader of the Taliban, Mullah Omar. And again, remarkably pragmatic and friendly. And then I went down to Kandahar and met there the governor of Kandahar, known as the conqueror of Kandahar because he captured it last year. And Haji Muhammad Yusuf Wafa is probably the most senior of these three and the closest to the Taliban spiritual leader, Mullah Akhanzada. And again, you know, he wants us there. He wants us doing this work. And of course, the great subject that divides the West from the Taliban is the question of women being able to work and girls being able to go to school. And I actually raised the subject with him. I said, look, we want to come here and do our humanitarian work, but you must know that Western donors are concerned that you're not moving quickly enough to protect women's rights or to allow girls to go to school. And all three of them are actually pretty pragmatic about this. And I think the real issue here is that they need to follow their own Sharia law. And they obviously don't want to be in a situation where by appearing too liberal, they then have elements of their own movement peel off and join Daesh. So there's a balance to be struck here, but I don't think we're up against sort of hardcore, dogmatic Taliban Mark I types here. I think we're looking at people who want to work out how to talk to the West. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and I'm talking to James Cowan of the Halo Trust about landmine and unexploded ordnance clearance. So I want to follow up on this question of gender and ordnance. You talked about the Taliban, and this is a choice of this government to continue to limit women and girls' access to the workplace and education. But I'm wondering, in your time of looking at how mines and other explosives have affected communities around the world, do you see striking gendered effects? Are men and women, boys and girls, affected differently? And does that in any way drive how you and your organization or governments respond? Yeah, I mean, when I joined the Halo Trust in 2015, the mine action world was a very male world. It emerged from sort of ex-military people wanting to make a difference. All the local national deminers were men. And I've made it my business to try and get to a 50% female workforce in countries like Angola, where we've grown hugely in the last year or so. It's really possible to do that, particularly when you're recruiting a new workforce. You've got to help them be able to do it because this is hard manual labour, often a long way from home. So the key issue is childcare. Can you help create the conditions for children to be looked after? And we've put a lot of work and thought into that. Second thing is you've got to make sure that the women can feel safe and not just be the kind of the labourers. Who's actually in charge of them? Are there imbalances of power 
have you promoted enough women so that they're actually the ones in charge? Is it actually possible to have all female workforces in certain places? So those are the sorts of things that we do to enhance the number of women who work within Mine Action. And also, of course, the international stuff, making sure that there are as many women as men in it. But of course, we're not here for our own workforce. We're here for our beneficiaries. And so your question really is about, is there a disproportionate effect of war on women? Or men. Well, I think, yes. Well, let's take both those things. Let's take some really obvious points, which is that it's men generally who get conscripted into war. And it is men in Ukraine right now who are dying as combatants. Well, it's women also. Ukraine actually has a comparatively high female participation in the military. That's true. But I use my words carefully there. I said in the main. I I would guess that if you were to look at the casualty rates for the Ukrainian military, they would be disproportionately male, perhaps as high as 90%. And I think you'd find in the Russian army, it's 100% men or near to it. So the issue then is really the indiscriminate nature of Russian tactics, their failure to observe any of the laws of war regarding proportionality, and the appalling effects of all types of munitions on populations in places like Mariupol. Now, what our evidence shows is that women are very often disproportionately affected by it. They often have less ability to move out of harm's way. They often have duties within the home to look after elderly relatives or towards children. And so I think we will find that there's been huge numbers of female casualties in cities like Mariupol. I think in Afghanistan, the question is more about the economic impact of war on women or on men. I mean, I think the reality is that that war tends towards conservative outcomes. So in the case of the Taliban, they're in a sort of almost a sort of an auction with ISIS to see who can be sufficiently conservative because it has been a conflict. It's a violent related competition. It is women who are the victims of it and not men. Most of the men I know in Afghanistan at the moment are very happy with the peace and security. Some of them are less concerned that the women can't work or have the freedom that they previously enjoyed. Do you have female staff in Afghanistan or has that not been possible since the Taliban took power? So actually, we never had many because it was always very difficult to employ them in sort of manual jobs that we use. Different cultures have different attitudes to this. We find it very easy to employ women in manual jobs in countries like Sri Lanka or Cambodia or African countries of any sort. But as you'll appreciate in Afghanistan, that's not been easy. But strangely, actually, we've been able to recruit more women since the Taliban came to power than we had before the Taliban came to power. And we're using them in quite interesting ways. One of the vital tasks within Mine Action is is survey, because you can waste a lot of money by trying to clear landmines from areas that don't have any. So if you can spend time in reconnaissance, you know, it won't be wasted. And so we've hired some fantastic, very talented women who essentially form our survey teams. Now, they don't go out on their own. They observe Islamic rules on this. They go with essentially a brother or a husband or a father. But we send our vehicles, two people in the vehicle, a woman and a man, to conduct the survey work. And they're really talented and fantastic at this job. But what I'd like to be able to do is recruit more, employ more, and really grow the numbers of women working for us Because this work is humanitarian, and I think the Taliban would be willing to allow that to happen. 
So Halo has campaigned for a landmine-free 2025 to try to clear all the landmines in the world and to call on nations to renew commitment to the 1997 Ottawa Mine Ban Treaty to no longer use landmines. Now, with war continuing in Ukraine, with substantial amount of mining, with other wars around the world, with in 2001, the UN declared Kosovo to be mine-free, but Halo has contested this. How likely do you think a landmine-free 2025 is? And what do you think are the next steps to getting rid of landmines? So I think the target of 2025, which was set actually in Mozambique in 2014, so it's quite old now, was a really useful target. It's purpose to galvanize interest in the campaign. And the plan, the program of making landmines a history has really been hugely successful. I mean, if you look like at countries like Mozambique or you look at uh, other countries like Zimbabwe, which are fast becoming cleared of landmines, the great strength of this movement is you've got a very clear class of weapons. You know they've been put in the ground. You know where they are. In a post-conflict situation, all you've got to do is clear them, and that's going pretty well. The problem is with in-conflict countries or in countries where conflict is in a state of sort of frozen in time. So obviously, the conflict countries, we've, been, we've got used to the other factor of conflict, which is that it's usually waged by non-state actors, of course, who are not signatories to treaties and make their own landmines in the form of IEDs. I mean, an IED is in law. If it's victim-operated, it's a landmine. So because non-state actors don't sign treaties and are not recognised in international law, that they don't play any part in the, in the landmine ban convention. Because the other aspect of the convention is it's an anti-personnel mine convention, not an anti-tank mine convention. So there's no nation in the world that's trying to ban anti-tank mines. So that's a problem in the sort of non-state world. But of course, now we have a full-on state conflict in the form of Ukraine. And that, I'm sure, cannot be dealt with until the war itself stabilises and we're able to do it. But we've already kind of touched on that. But then there are those other conflicts that you might say are sort of frozen in time. And the most obvious example of that is the Korean DMZ. It's the most heavily mined piece of land in the world. It's an enormous sort of four kilometre deep minefield running from memory about 180 kilometres. So nobody's going to be allowed to clear that anytime soon. So I think the answer to your question is that there will be a lot of places where a huge amount of progress has been made by 2025. But the reality is the world will not be free of landmines in 2025, and the world must continue to push to get rid of this weapon. So, James, thank you so much. I feel like I could go on for quite a long time, kind of war zone by war zone, and emerge from it so much more informed. But we are sadly out of time. So I'm going to just have to thank you for joining us here on War and Peace and sharing your knowledge. Okay, thank you very much. For our listeners, you can find out more about the Halo Trust and the role it plays in how communities recover from conflict around the world on their website, halotrust.org. They are also on Twitter, at the Halo Trust, so easy enough. You can read Crisis Group's work on some of the conflicts and regions touched upon in this episode on our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. My co-host, Elissa, is at Elissa Jobson, although she could not be here today. And I'm at Olya Oliker. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where Crisis Group is also at Crisis Group. 
Crisis Group. If you have enjoyed this podcast, or if you have not, and have suggestions for topics or guests or thoughts on how we can do better, give us a shout out on Twitter or wherever you are online. You can email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you are on iTunes or anything of that nature that lets you leave a rating and a review, please do that. We do read them. War and Peace is a partner in the Europod podcast network. You should check them out for some other really terrific podcasts focused on Europe. Big thanks to our producer, Bull Media, and to our coordinators, Finn Dunbar-Johnson and Alex Vygorsky, for getting us ready to go for each recording. But finally, and as always, our biggest thanks are to you, our listeners. I'm looking forward to chatting with you again in about two weeks. But until then, goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.